Hey everybody, you are tuned to Deep Dive, the all music books podcast where we turn music book authors loose. Today we dive into Bobby Gentry, Ode to Billy Joe with author Tara Martha. This is one of my favorites in the 33 and a third series and I'm happy to welcome Tara. Hello, great to be here, thanks. So your book on Bobby Gentry's debut album was part of the 33 and a third series. And for our listeners who don't know, that's a pretty competitive series where you really have to present a lot of work on your record and why you want to do a book on that. Can you tell us what your pitch was for the album and why this album? Sure. I had this in mind for a 33 book for a while, actually. You know, anyone that sort of watches that series, they very occasionally open it for proposals. You know, it's sort of like a two-week window, and then it slams shut again, and you kind of never know when that's going to happen. So, of course, it happened at, like, the most inconvenient time <laughs> to um, to pull it together. But I had been working on it in an ongoing way, and I actually did a huge grad school project sort of on Bobby Gentry um, and on the topic. And that was what made me realize that I'd like to do a 33. So I pitched it as what it wound up being really um, an investigative pop history. You know, I know I wanted to do a really, that's my background as an investigative reporter and an arts features writer. So I wanted to combine that and do a deep dive and as deep as I could to actually dig up facts about Bobby Gentry and her career. I found it really befuddling that um, she had this cult status and I'd listened to the music, of course, and really could just find the same like three little paragraphs for the most part outside of a few articles that just regurgitated this sort of mythical biography. And so I also was acutely aware that people who had worked with her were getting older and that, you know, I was somewhat of a race against time to be able to find contracts and talk with people that would have worked with her. So I just presented it really as a very research heavy investigative pop history to try to figure out, you know, in part why she chose to disappear from the spotlight, but really just to illuminate, you know, her, her career overall and use the first record as a prism to do that. Well, as you know, your book was one of my favorites of 33 and a third. I've read several, you know, in fact, quite a few, and I find they can definitely get a little academic. <laughs> uh, your, in- your investigative background really shone through. And, it, you know, everybody knows Ode to Billy Joe, but uh, the background you presented was just so fascinating. Oh, well, thank you. Mm-hmm. Appreciate that. Yeah, well, let's jump into that. Um, ironically, you know, one of the things I learned was the single off of that album was Mississippi Delta which was a whole nother kind of thing musically. It was funky and bluesy and had horns and guitars. Mm-hmm. But it was the disc jockeys that kept spinning the B-side, which, of course, was owed to Billy Joe. Well, so it's really two widely different songs in style. Totally. And with Mississippi Delta, you know, Bobby brought that into Capitol fully formed. The horn section, everything was done. She just handed them the tape, which is pretty wild and pretty indicative to me that she was looking for a hit, you know, that that jived with what was on the radio, you know, this real kind of barn burner, soulful stew song. And whereas Ode was not, you know, Ode was one of what she referred to as her regional songs, you know. (laughs) And um, it actually got flipped before it got to the DJs, you know, at Capitol once Kelly Gordon, the producer, assigned Jimmy Haskell, the composer, to put the strings on top of Ode to slap it on the B-side. They listened to it and realized that it was, you know, more than the sum of its parts at that point. And then he championed it at the next meeting and really argued for this totally bizarre 
song to get released as the A side, and not just bizarre sounding and unlike anything else on the radio, but it was you know four minutes fifteen seconds, so it was too long as well. So he really advocated. So by the time it came out, it was the A side, and it was being you know advertised in the, the little sneak peeks and billboard and stuff was focused on Ode, but um, the DJs certainly went <laughs> picked up on it, and as you know, as the ubiquitous sound of that summer. Um, as some writers have said. And and that was the demo, right, that, that, that was released. They added the strings, but wasn't that the demo that she cut? Yeah, yeah. The whole record um, were, and that was something that I realized pretty far into the research. You know, people talked about this demo, but after a while I realized talking to even an engineer at the studio where she had cut it, uh, Mike Deasy, who is a session player that was on Ode, you know, being conducted by um, Jimmy Haskell, that he described sitting in the room and that you know they played um for the part that they put on top from jimmy haskell but that she sang like a guiding vocal but they didn't even recut the vocal and jimmy haskell also confirmed for me really explicitly said you know the demo that we're talking about was the tape i mean it wasn't a demo it was a demo produced professionally produced with bobby paris as i report in the book um as um, you know, on a in a professional way, just referred to as the demo, um, and that was why they were also able to just kind of really put together the whole record pretty quickly and get it out the door once Ode hit as a single. You know, they put it out as a single without any art. Nobody knew what she looked like or who she was yeah. planning on um, going into full gear and getting a full LP out so quickly um, on top of it. But they were able to do so in part because she she had the record. She brought it in. Um, you know, everything else was just sweetening sessions, as they called them, putting uh, some sounds on top so great when this fully formed there's lots of those stories but you know nothing quite like ode to billy joe which was so dark and so sparse mm-hmm. and that's the record that knocked the beatles all you need is love out of the number one spot on the billboard charts right right pretty amazing on the one hand all you need is love and then you have this really dark tale yeah i mean not only that but they you know it, the the production of ode to billy joe the lp was highlighted in this huge article in Billboard at the time, showcasing just as an example, showcasing Capital's power and having all these different arms of, you know, the, the record studios and the advertising department, you know, showing it as this um, powerhouse that was able to get it out the door. And they ordered 500,000 copies, um, which the previous record of a pre-order for a label uh, in terms of expectation of sales was the Beatles. Um, for Meet the Beatles was 100,000 copies. I mean, they ordered five times the record that they had ever ordered before um, because that's how huge the single was. And they were right. It, you know, <laughs> it still sells. So Definitely. And, and in preparation for this uh, talk here, I went back and listened to that song and it's, it's just incredible. So let's talk mm-hmm. about that for a minute. There's a lot to it. Um, one of the many powers I think in it is the, this nonchalant way that the family's talking about Billy Joe's death, you know, pass the biscuits. I'll have another piece of mm-hmm. apple pie. Yeah. I mean, that Bobby had repeatedly stated that that was really the point of the song, you know, as people obsessed about what was thrown off the bridge you know, in the, the plot lines of the song, um, she's long maintained that the entire point, if there had to be a point, she was getting a little a little bummed out that she, you know, was called to explain it. You know, that the point was really showing the family's kind of disinterest in the young girl, the narrator of the song's experience, um, and that they 
or sitting right there at the table and don't even notice that she's that upset. She clearly has a relationship that's not laid out, that's not specified in any way um, with Billy Joe. And uh, they just keep on going. And in sort of a macro way, you know, as part of her ongoing critique of Southern culture, I really think a lot about Eudora Welty's short stories and sharing that Southern Gothic point of view that points out that all of these very specific traditions and conventions that are supposed to showcase family loyalty and intimacy are really like weaponized and used to drive people apart. And that was really her, her point of view. Yeah. You know, the mother of the narrator uh, in the song, you know, she does notice she's like, you haven't touched a single mm-hmm. one. And they say, someone saw a girl that looked like you up there with Billy Joe throwing something off the bridge. But yet there's, there's no questions, no answers, no interaction, no empathy. Yeah, you're right. I mean, her and the, the narrator and the mom get closer than the brother and the father, right? There's this like shared feminine understanding. But then by the end of the song, by the final verses, her mom lost her father and she still can't. And she lost Billy Joe and they still sort of just float away <laughs> from each other. You get the sense that they couldn't connect through their respective grief either, even if they can understand that it existed. And that's that's a super powerful thing. But of of course, and I'm sure you've answered this many times, the million dollar question is what were they throwing off the bridge? There's there's lots of theories out there, you know, for the, our listeners who haven't investigated it. Do you want to run through them? Sure. There's three major ones, I guess. One's just sort of like a trinket of some kind, you know, a locket or a necklace or ring to symbolize engagement. And that there's, you know, something to do with a baby you know, one of the Capitol guys thought that the song was about abortion, so he, he refused to participate in it. He didn't want Capitol to release it because of that. Very early on, I, only, I mean, I read, of course, everything I could find, and I found one time Bobby early, early on said it was a trinket. And then from there on out, she backed up and said, you know, that it would talk about that it didn't matter what it was. You know, I mean, really, in a literary sense, it was what was referred to in film as a MacGuffin. Like in Hitchcock movies, there's some main detail of the plot that drives all the plot, but is really incidental and not really, <laughs> not the not significant to the meeting. Or I think about the, the suitcase in Pulp Fiction. Right, right. So it like it threads through the whole narrative and it kind of pushes people's actions, but in the end, is pretty incidental, you know, to what it was. And certainly, that's what the literary technique was. I think that the real answer <laughs> is that. She told musicians that she was working with when she first got her foot in the door at Capitol, and she was like, oh, I think this record's going to happen for me. You know, I think they're going to record it and release it. And she told them, she told Frank Lacuna, who she was in a band called The International Four with, that uh, she was like, and you know what? People are going to think it's a baby, and they're going to talk about it. <laughs> That's the one that always pops up. The fact that it's not clear, I think, probably added a lot to the appeal of the song. I'm sure there are some you know, incredible dinnertime conversations over what the heck that was. Oh, yeah. And that's what I'm saying. She knew, you know, she knew that on a craft level (laughs) that leaving it ambiguous was part of going to be part of the um, attraction of the song. You know, for people, people would wouldn't be able to resist trying to figure out what it was. People want to know what those young girls are up to, you know. The, the production style was something you really didn't hear on the radio. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's an awfully tough song to top and talk about one that probably shouldn't be covered. <laughs> her career really continued on an up, uh, you know, an upward trajectory. Um, eventually, she had her own TV show on the BBC. Right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was the first woman to host a variety show on the BBC. Um, she 
the producer was this gentleman named Stanley Dorfman, and they had done one of those specials, you know, one-offs for BBC that, like, Joni Mitchell and all those people did, and they, they got together to do this show. I've interviewed Stanley, and he made it abundantly clear that Bobby was, in fact, a co-producer and that she, you know, didn't just perform and host but that she really like conceived the show the tone of the show helped select guests try to figure it you know figure it out um and she had talked about being interested in tv from early on and there were talks with u.s execs about a variety show but at the end of the day they just didn't think that a woman could carry a show and that is despite you know the success of carol burnett <laughs> Um, at right. the time, but Carol Burnett got her show. She had a little clause in her contract that said that she was able to ask for something kind of like a reserved, like a you know back pocket <laughs> ask. And she pulled that out and said, "Well, it says right here that I can you know try to do this." And you know, she so she really had to advocate for herself and maneuver to get her show as well. But she did. Uh, yeah, she did three seasons um, in, in the BBC. And then later on, she did get a CBS show called The Happiness Hour. I was going to ask about that because here you have, you know, this very uniquely American music style and then even more pointedly a Southern presentation. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's on the BBC. They still do. I mean, let's love American singer songwriter style, right? And very, you know, I love a lot of musician friends that to this day, you know, they, they do better touring Europe um, than they do the United States with like Americana style music. And right. then ironically, the BC let Bobby um, have a lot of artistic input. And, you know, a lot of that had to do with Stanley Dorfman, I'm sure. But once she got to CBS, you know, I interviewed some people that were part of the show and the production, and it was just really uptight. They really wanted to go in like a sort of hee-haw, like play up Southern in like a, not in a sophisticated way, you know? Yeah, what was typical of country music yeah, in the Yeah, yeah, real like real hayseed kind of stuff, you know, that she was obviously not into. Um, and then they even came down, the suits quashed a few skits, you know, uh, Bobby's Dancers, which were the dancers that she performed with in her live shows. Um, did this really cool number where they were the Andrews sisters and they're male dancers in nurse uniforms. And, you know, the CBS executives apparently went nuts and thought that, yeah, she was really um, pretty gender transgressive in a lot of ways. I mean, it's kind of funny because it's her gender performance is invisible when it's like super hyper femininity, which has been a mode that she did perform a lot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? She was teeny tiny. So she wore these four inch heels and all that. Um, was hyper feminine, but she also did that kind of stuff, did Elvis in drag with the pompadour and short hair and everything. You know, she was pretty clear. I mean, if she was performing today, it would be pretty obvious that part of her artistic vision was questioning the performance of gender by hyper performing gender. But they nobody thought that way at the time. You know, they just thought it was wild. But she also, she had a mutual admiration society with yes, Elvis too, didn't she? She did. And, um, you know, it's really bizarre parallel really you know both coming poor kids from mississippi who wind up these you know celestial stars and out on the vegas strip at the same time and so she did this elvis performance which i have on film and is just magnificent and she's in this skin tight glittering white suit and she embodies his movements you know really but where she leans back and slowly 
um, unfurls the silk scarf and throws it into the crowd and does this whole Elvis medley. And he heard about it and came into the show, you know, <laughs> and that's how they um, became friends. And then she, her and a small group of friends after her shows would go over, you know, to the Hilton and hang out um, with Elvis. And it's been up for a while debate how intimate they were, but um you know, it's a pretty wild scene picturing Bobby sitting around with a, an acoustic guitar jamming with Elvis and Tom Jones <laughs> in Vegas, right? It's funny, though, you mentioned Elvis, like, you know, peeling his scarf off and people would go crazy. But a woman does that and it's, you know, scandalous and it speaks to some of the things you've mentioned. Hello, Pantheon podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. In 1969, uh, Gentry releases an amazing song called Fancy, and that's a young woman looking back on her life. Can you uh, tell our listeners about that song if they don't know it? Sure. Fancy is another story song, and it's also from sang and written from the point of view of a young girl. In this case, the narrator is just turning 18, and her mom, you know, they're living in poverty. And the big line is, the baby's going to starve to death, you know. And her mom kits her out in a slinky red dress that's iconic now. It's um, the cover of the record actually is a portrait of Bobby Gentry in this tight little red dress that she painted herself from her own portrait. I've seen that cover. Yeah, um, pretty iconic image. And in the song, you know, it's her mother, the, the chorus is her mother saying, here's your one chance, fancy, don't let me down, and basically turns her out, you know, has her keep taking gentlemen callers in exchange for uh, some economic security. And by the end of the song, she's pouring tea in a Georgia mansion and says, and I ain't done bad, you know, pretty defiantly. It's interesting, in her Vegas performances, she would go all out on that song and double down, even though it was scandalous at the time. The song was, of course, the implication that she's a prostitute was pretty scandalous, you know. 
and or playing the role of a prostitute in the song even. But instead of backing down from that and saying, oh, it's a metaphor for the music industry, which is what her friends have told me. You know, they're like, I mean, that's her song about her experience in showbiz, you know. But instead of kind of getting coy about all that, she like doubled and tripled down and would come out on stage swinging around a pole inside a giant glittering birdcage, right? That spirals out onto stage. Wow. And then it kind of she kind of disappears. And then you hear that bass line of the down down. You know, light comes up and she just descends a spiral staircase singing fancy. Actually, in some cases, she's singing House of the Rising Sun into fancy. So even like being super explicit. Um, and she adds a little line at the end. And, you know, after the ain't done bad, she throws the boa around her neck and says, my name is fancy and I'm not ashamed and I do it again. And that's the big ending. You know, I'm a giant F you, you know, to like the idea of people being so uptight and judgmental and literal and it seems to me like 180 degrees from Ode to Billy Joe, though, in terms of a strong woman in the song, you know, the opposite end of the spectrum, but a very Southern perspective still. You know, I could see what you mean. Both of the songs are about disillusionment, right? That's like the main theme of Bobby Gentry's entire songbook. Like half of the songs about disillusionment are about the South and the deep dive into Southern culture and of like the Ode to Billy Joe style. And the other half later on, she still is exploring the themes of disillusionment and feeling responsibility toward others that she wants to be liberated from. And um, But in the context of Hollywood or Case of Fancy, I mean, slightly adjusted Hollywood, like the metaphor of Hollywood, you know. Right. So I don't really see them that opposite in point of view, though they're different in storytelling. And weirdly, or wildly, Warner Brothers, after the film Ode to Billy Joe came out, she wrote a script for Fancy as a movie. And Warner Brothers had a vision of producing it as a sequel to Ode to Billy Joe. So the story of the narrator and Fancy they thought could be made into the part two of kind of where the girl in Ode leaves off, which is pretty wild to think about. We're talking to Tara Murtha, who's the author of Bobby Gentry, Ode to Billy Joe, and the 33 and a Third series. So Bobby Gentry is a very attractive woman, a great songwriter, a great singer, an astute businesswoman. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty rare in the industry at that time. I mean, I don't think so, as people being rare to be able to showcase all that together was rare. People have always been able to be wildly attractive and wildly intelligent, right? It's unfair, but it's true. Right. No, I guess what I meant was, you know, you had mentioned Hee Haw earlier. Yeah. And her presentation was clearly her own vision. Yeah, yeah. She stopped short of saying, poor me, I'm so beautiful. But it really blew my mind some of the early articles about her when she first came on the scene and how blatantly disrespectful they were because she was so beautiful. I mean, here she was a, a woman who, you know, a girl out of Mississippi who, for all they know, walked into Capitol Records and put out this song that knocked the Beatles out of number one, right? And they put her, quote, Miss America measurements and would literally guess the number of inches that her waist and hips were. <laughs> so um, so she was certainly treated that way. Yeah. And she she stopped short of and she never spoke about a pity party or anything like that. But she did say that it was frustrating that beauty was supposed to negate intelligence and that it was tough to be a female. She wrote, you know, she described herself as a as a female composer and producer, which she was in working in this all male industry 
an environment, you know, which it pretty much was at the time. Right. And as that feminist writer and artist, I think you could see the ripples after her, you know, of influence, certainly in country music, but all music genres. Oh, yeah. It almost collapses even the kind of point of genre. It's the it's interesting the way gender plays out in the context of like selecting genres, too. I mean, she considered herself a pop composer that wrote about some personal and country regional things. She didn't think of herself as, quote, a country singer. In that context, some of the struggle that she had is that we see it still today, that there's this assumption a lot of times about female songwriters that whatever they wrote has to be autobiography. It's not like craft that is inspired from their experiences or personal life, you know? And, you know, you see female artists getting quizzed about this all the time um, to a much greater extent, you know, less scrutiny than, than male writers do. And it's this sort of passive assumption that there's not an artistic process there, that you're just like writing your, you know, confessional diaries. Yeah, that I think that I think is pretty, uh, pretty interesting to see so acutely there and then still see it 50 years later. So in 1983 or so, Bobby Gentry, poof, she's gone. We don't see her again. And I read an interview with you where you said that she flipped the script on fame. Mm -hmm. Can you expand on that, what you mean by that? Because I think in your looking for her, you could not turn her up for your book. Well, yeah. So we connected through an intermediary. She declined participation kindly, which I get into in the book, sort of that whole process. You know, she did not let the persona live her life. She flipped the script because she actually remained Bobby Gentry, her you know stage name that she assigned herself around 18 years old or 14 years old, and took what she needed out of the industry and then just kept going. <laughs> you know, she retired around 40 years old. So she got what she needed to get out of it. Certainly, she had frustrating experiences. I mean, all the evidence suggests that she was essentially able to produce some records and make some records for a while after she left Capitol. Um, she left before her contract was up. There was a big shift in the executive leadership at Capitol right around the time her last record came out, which patchwork and the sales were disappointing, though she always maintained she was very proud of that record. And it is a good record. So that was what motivated her to go to Vegas and reinvent herself as a way both to continue being an artist but to make money it's pretty cool that she never played the game and about not being interested in making money either <laughs> she's like I'm talented I've been training from the time I was a kid to be in entertainment and she explicitly would say freedom is financial freedom as well you know that that's necessary for her life so even though she got um mistreated certainly in a lot of ways. In the end, she didn't just keep going and let it drain her. She won. She won. She left on top. Think about Mae West, for example, sort of became kind of lost control of the persona she had created. And um, Bobby never did that. She left on top and everybody, everybody wants to invite her to their party. And <laughs> perhaps she still likes to, like they say, when you get married, uh, you know, it's still nice to be invited and doesn't want to go. Tara, you also put together quite the Spotify companion playlist for the book with 68 songs, and they appear, quote, in the order that they appear in the book. Uh, fans expecting all Bobby Gentry are going to be really surprised by your playlist. They're going to get hit with Kanye, A Tribe Called Quest, Billy Idol, The Doors, Sinatra. Can you help us out here on that playlist? Well, first of all, I mean, the, the you know, my book came out a little while ago, and I'm still waiting for that to be 
standard when a music book comes out. You know, I always read a music book with a laptop on my lap, looking up every song that they reference, you know, when they're even talking about musicians that they hung out with, you know, the main person hung out with or were influenced by. So it's, I think of it as the book soundtrack. And yeah, it's way more than, I mean, there's hip hop, you know, in large part because of Lou Donaldson a jazz drummer who did a version of Ode to Billy Joe that has a beat that's just, it's one of the most sampled beats, you know, in hip hop. So that's where you get to, to the Kanye <laughs> through, um, through Lou Donaldson, which is pretty cool. So it's stuff that you were listening to at the time, or is it stuff inspired by and a part of the book or a little of everything? Well, no, I mean, it was through my research of trying to, you know, grasp the legacy of the record and of the song. I came across this fact, you know, um, about Lee Donaldson, and I was just listening to all the different versions. And I really love when I really love a song and I'm digging into songs or a particular record, I like to look up covers of them and listen to as many covers as possible because it's almost like through listening to so many different people's and, and I mean even like, you know, YouTube people, um, <laughs> because listening to so many versions of a song like illuminates it in a way, illuminates the bones of the song, you know, because you're just taking out, you're seeing how the bones of the song can be infused with a different perspective, a different vibe, people bring a different thing to it. So it's, I feel like I know the song better listening to it 10 times and 90 different people playing it than just listening to the one song over and over. I know what you mean. It's almost like with all that window dressing, it yeah, really has to stand yeah, on its exactly. own bones in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It just strips the production away, the style, you know? Um, but the, so while doing that, I was listening to these, you know, jazz covers and there were, I don't even know, something like 200 versions just in 1967, 68 of Ode to Billy Joe, wow. you know? Yeah. Um, you know, instrumentals. And that's how I came across uh, the Lou Donaldson version. And then from there jumped into all the, the hip hop songs that the Beats used in. Well, it's a really good playlist. Thank you. And I <laughs> You know, maybe I'll go through it again to make some of those connections you mentioned, but uh, it's very interesting. So we'll wind it up here. What's next for Tara Murtha? I read recently, I guess it was last September, actually, you did a piece on uh, Sinead O'Connor, the anniversary of her tearing up the picture of the Pope on SNL, which was an amazing story. Do you have another killer album in mind to write about? The Sinead O'Connor piece is going to be in a collection being published by 33 and a third coming out this fall called the b-sides and the premise of the book are 33 and a third authors writing essays about you know another track or album that they would write about and i have certainly gone through my Sinead deep dives and so i wrote about that and beyond that i've been really deep diving into the process of singing singing communal singing as a lost public activity in america and sort of the cultural significance the the biological aspect of singing is really blowing my mind like that we're meat flutes essentially it's kind of <laughs> like blowing my mind that blows my mind oh, and it started because i i started taking vocal lessons a little while ago and just some of the stuff that i've learned through the lessons it's kind of wild to be writing about music all these years and not know this kind of stuff about like how the human body works in this way. So that's what where my mind is at right now, for the most part, when it comes to writing. Thanks for appearing with us, Tara. I'd like to tell everyone listening that the Bobby Gentry book is amazing. The Sinead piece is really illuminating. It's got a stunning video from Chile, yep. I think mm -hmm. it is, and it, it's must-see TV. We'd love to have you back on when you got another book out. Hey, right on. Thanks so much for having me. It's been fun. 
I'd like to thank today's guest, Tara Murtha. If you'd like to find out more about her book, please visit allmusicbooks.com and you can buy it through our site. We'd appreciate it, and so would Tara. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive episodes there. I'd like to thank our engineer extraordinaire, Steve Folsom, who can be found at www.fullsound.com. Finally, a big shout out to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout the podcast. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all of the major streaming services. Please support local and independent musicians and writers. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive, an all-music-books podcast. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.